Hi, I'm Sean L. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. You may have heard Helen Hong as a regular panelist on the hit NPR quiz show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Hong also has appeared on the big screen in Inside Llewellyn Davis, and in recurring roles on TV in sitcoms and comedy shows, including HBO's Silicon Valley, The Unicorn on CBS, and the Netflix After Party. As a stand-up comedian, Hong has grown up from her start as a quote-unquote little ethnic girl, releasing her debut comedy special, Helen Hong, Well Hong, via Comedy Dynamics, which she recorded in the summer of 2021 as part of the Tribeca Film Festival. Hung sat down with me over Zoom to talk about her early days and nights as a TV producer behind the camera, how she moved to Hollywood without a steady gig and lived to joke about it, filming a nationwide TV commercial with a Muppet, and her life as the daughter of Korean immigrants. If you like this conversation, please consider subscribing to my substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com so you can read bonus commentary on this episode as well as more comedy news and insights. Thanks in advance, and now that that's out of the way, let's get to it! So, Helen Hong, we've been Hi. I've been asking you to be on the podcast for years. Yes. Since before and I, the and pandemic. I'm very, and I'm very snobby. So I'm <laughs> like, I'm like, la di da, I'm just too busy. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's it's because it's, it's I'm a mess. <laughs> Is the real secret shot. I'm a mess. Wait, wait, wait. Don't tell me that you're a mess. <laughs> I'm a mess. I'm no. like secretly. I'm one of those people that like people are surprised to find out is a mess. <laughs> but I'm like an absolute mess. Like I first of all, my I'm a borderline hoarder. So like my, my bedroom, and thankfully I live with a minimal and my, I live with my sister and she's a minimalist. So mm-hmm. like we're on a constant struggle, but like, so the common areas because of my sister are, are in good shape, but my room, which I'm in the closet of my room right now is starting to become one of those like hoarder episodes where it's like, there's a path to the <laughs> bed. Like there's a path from the door to the bed with like just crap on either side. That's me. But then you have this sanctuary of a closet i do i had to do it during the pandemic this is my literal bed bedroom closet see i can still hang clothes do you see that but did you do this because you're like such a regular on npr and i yeah i did that and also uh there's a new baby in my life yes spoiler alert if you haven't yet watched helen hong well hong via comedy dynamics on a streaming platform near you. I'm a parent to a child that did not exit my body. (laughs) That's the, that's the teaser of it is I'm raising a child that I did not incubate nor eject from my, from my physical form. (laughs) (laughs) Which means that you are still a little ethnic girl. Yes. Oh my God. Good memory, Sean. That is like ancient, ancient history. Well, I I actually want to ask you something that predates that even because, ah. well, I know that people have polarizing opinions on comedy schools and comedy classes, but from what I understand, 
that's how you got started. Yeah. And I completely embrace it. I embrace it because I, uh, I grew up in an immigrant household. I didn't know anything about stand up. I, you know, my parents never listened to stand up. They never watched stand up. They don't, you know, their English is not that great. And so they weren't stand up people. And so I didn't know that. I, I honestly didn't know stand up was like a job you could do. And I never listened to any records or watched any specials. Like I was clueless about stand up. And um, obviously I knew about Margaret Cho and I was like really intrigued by her. And I was like, I knew kind of about the most famous, undeniably famous, like in your face standups in the world. But I just wasn't a stand up fan. Um, but I was in a point in my life where I was like super depressed. I was working a day job that was like not good for me. And I was super depressed. And a friend of a friend had taken a class at Caroline's on Broadway, you know, one of the biggest clubs in New York City. And he was like, oh, I'm taking the stand-up class. There's a graduation show. I'd love to invite you to the graduation show. And I was like, you can take stand-up class? Like, what even is that about? Sure, I'll go. So I went. He was terrible. <laughs> I'm sorry to say, wherever he is. I don't even mm-hmm. remember his He was a friend of a friend. I don't even remember his name. Thankfully, I've never heard of him again, so he hasn't pursued me. Pursued it. <laughs> I, I like but, how you put your hand up as I'm if sorry, that's going to stop your voice from traveling across the world. <laughs> um, but you know, uh, this it kind of opened my eyes. And at the graduation show, there were these little flyers, of course, that are a little they're marketing the hell out of it. And so there were these little flyers on all the table, like, "Do you?" are you interested in stand-up? Have mm-hmm. you ever entertained? And I was like, no, but I'm super depressed right now. And this sounds fun. Like, let's try this. Do you remember anyone else from either that show that you watched or from your class that also was still doing it? Still in comedy? Um, there was, I took a follow-up class. So I took like the second level of that class. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately... I one of my first friends in stand up is a woman named Erica Watson who oh. actually passed she died away. of COVID, didn't she? Died of COVID. Yeah, she died of COVID last year, and it was like super devastating because she was literally my first friend in stand up. Oh, wow. Yeah, she wasn't she, but so she wasn't in the original class that I took. I took a second class shortly right. after, so you know, six months later, and she was in that class, and she was fantastic even then. And so we we like gravitated towards each other. Um, I hate to say we were the best ones in class, but um, obviously you were because yeah. you were, you were both able to make a living in it. Yeah. Yeah. So what were you doing as that day job? I was a TV producer. Ah, so you were in show business. I was were- in show business. Like I always wanted to be part of it, but I didn't mm-hmm. know, I didn't see a path, you know, being an Asian American immigrant with immigrant parents, like. And at the time, like there was, you know, I, I talk about this sometimes when I do like, like speeches at colleges and stuff um, that uh, the only person that I saw on TV that was feasibly a person in show business that I could emulate was Connie Chung. Do you remember mm. Connie Chung? Yeah. Connie Chung was a newscaster. And eventually I learned she was married to Maury Povich. Exactly. That, sh- that should have been the red flag right there. <laughs> that should have been like. He is the father. He is the father. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Hmm. So, and that was the only kind of acceptable, you know, in an Asian American family, like the acceptable way of being in show business was like 
was like reading the news because she was she was on TV every night, but she was very put together and mm-hmm. she was like, you know, she was a newscaster. So very respectable. And that was the only person that I could see on TV. So I actually went to school for broadcast journalism, found out I hated it during <laughs> school. But like by then I had already had a degree and like had no other skills. I just had this useless degree in broadcast journalism. So I was like, ah, so I like moved to LA and became a PA um, and just like rose the ranks and, and eventually became a TV producer. And I worked on a lot of like women's reality light programming, like what, what, what not to wear okay. and, you know, say yes to the dress <laughs> and like stuff like that. So I was doing that and I was miserable. I was miserable. I mean, it was like gold. It was the perfect um, example of golden handcuffs, you know, where I had this like prestigious job where if I told people what I did, like, oh, I'm a TV producer on these shows that you've heard of, people would be like, oh, my God, that's so impressive. You know, people were so impressed and it was a prestigious job and I made very good money. Um, and, you know, my parents were proud of me. They were like, oh, my, my daughter works at E or, oh, my daughter works for NBC. Like it was bragging rights for my parents. And I honestly, like at the, at the pinnacle of that job, I would cry myself to sleep every night. Cause it was like, I just knew, I was like, is this all there is to life? Like, I hate this. This is not, I don't like anything about this job. Um, so when I met you, you were in New York, yeah. based in New York, and you were doing, you were actually doing a live show called Little Ethnic Girls. I know you right. subsequently did a podcast, but at the time, yeah. I, I distinctly remember you were part of like a quartet yeah. that did shows at Gotham. I don't know if you did shows elsewhere, but with um, yeah. Maria Shahada, Liz Mealy, and Rachel. So Maria, Sh- Maria Shahada and I were really good friends. Mm-hmm. Um she was also kind of like one of my first really good friends in stand up. And we were always, and then, and then Liz, Liz was also a friend, good friend of ours. And so the three of us would hang out and people would always comment like, Oh, it's the little ethnic girls. Cause all of us are short. Petite, petite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Small and of some ethnicity mm-hmm. <laughs> that's not white. And so um, we started thinking of this idea, like, why don't we do a show about this? You know? So um, we added a fourth, Rachel, um, and uh, we had a big show at Gotham. We did, a, we did it as like a recurring show occasionally, but I don't know. It just never took off, and then we went on to do other things. But, um, yeah, that was, that, was, that was probably like my producing background because I came from a producing background. And so when I started stand-up, I was always like scheming ways to like produce myself into more stage time. Uh, Here's a crazy story, Sean. I remember maybe my second year of stand-up, second or third year of stand-up, being in the basement bar of Gotham Comedy Club with Mm -hmm. Amy Schumer, with Amy Schumer and Jackie Monaghan. Okay. Yeah, they were were palling around back then. Being like, how do we get more stage time? How do we get more stage time? Maybe we should do a show where we're in bikinis <laughs> to, get, to yeah. get people to come. <laughs> yeah, I remember that was a thing. Right. I, mean, I, I think it might still be a thing somewhere, but yeah, uh, in totally. 2022. But I mean, that's that was definitely a thing like, in the late in the late 
2000s. That's just like, that's where we were in our minds because we were like just desperate to get stage time and we were always scheming ways to get more stage time. Honestly, like Sean, you know, like when you're starting out as a comic, it's just all about like, how do we get more stage time? Cause I can't, cause, cause open mics are only good for, you know, good for a certain thing. And then after that, you're like, I need to get more stage time in front of a real audience. So what ended up being the turning point for you? I mean, for Amy, it was last comic standing. Yeah. What was the turning point for you? I, I, do I have a turning point? <laughs> I don't know. I don't yeah, know. You've been, you're, I don't know. You've been Did on, I have you've, a turning point? You've been, you've been a, a regular recurring character on a broadcast network primetime yeah, that's true, the unicorn that's true, that's true. honestly it you're was on probably, a netflix show you're it was probably moving to la it was probably moving to la and did you I, move did you move to la with a part already or no oh okay. no and that was the thing that a lot of people i remember i moved to la in 2012 and at that time i was at the height of my career in new york i had just been passed at the comedy cellar which as you know, as part of the New York scene, like that is a big freaking deal, right? right? To be passed at the Comedy Cellar. Um, so I had just been passed at the Comedy Cellar. I was regularly working at Gotham, at Stand Up New York, Caroline's. Like I was known in the New York scene. Right. You could and do like, the you could do the six gigs a night thing. If I you was doing the to. six gigs. Yep, I was doing the six gigs a night, and I was doing like the road work that you could get to from New York. Mm-hmm. A lot of buses and trains. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was miserable. Uh, honestly, New York was making me crazy. I was at the point where I was fantasizing, pushing tourists like down subway steps. Because I'd be like, you know, I, I, every New Yorker has had this experience where like the train has pulled in, right? So you only have a certain amount of time to get down. This, you're like, you have to run down the steps to run into the train to catch your train. But you're trapped behind a tourist who's like, oh, goodness me. This is the subway. Wow, we know it. And you're like, move. Move. I'm about to miss my train. And I was fantasizing pushing those people down the steps. And that's when you know you should leave New York. When you're like, when you're fantasizing about random murder. (laughs) That's when you know you should. And like everything about, like, I'm an introvert, which I know, you know, a lot of comics are introverts. Um, So I need like my recharge time is alone time. Like I need to be alone to recharge. I can't be around people all the time. I just need large chunks of the day where I'm just like completely by myself. And so New York living is just hard. You know, if you have to get to an audition and you have to go meeting or something and the first thing in your day with your morning cup of coffee is getting on the subway. Like it was making me crazy. Like it was just the whole New York lifestyle was making me nuts. And so this was 2012. And I was like, you know what? I'm moving to LA. I don't have a job in LA. I don't have a gig. I don't have it. I'm going to have to cut ties with my manager because he's not, he doesn't represent in LA. I'm going to have to find an agent. Like I had nothing. And a lot of comics at the time were like, Helen, you're nuts. You're going to move to LA with no gig, no agent, no manager, no nothing. You're going to have to start over. And I was like, I completely understand that. And I'm going in with eyes wide open, but I am turning into a raging bitch in New York. Like I am turning into an, an, a trash human. <laughs> and 
I did it. I, it was a leap of faith and it was starting over. Like I, I moved to New York and like, I, I moved to LA and like, I had to prove myself again at all the clubs. Like nobody knew me, you know, obviously like some comics knew me, you know, from New York. Right. Um, so I had a leg up in that some comics could vouch for me. And that's how I got like, you know, I got auditioned at Laugh Factory fairly quickly. I got passed at Laugh Factory fairly quickly. Um, you know, there were comics at the comedy store who knew me. So there were ways that I could get in that was exactly starting over, but it was pretty much starting over. Um, but I was really, I took a leap of faith and I feel like I was really rewarded for that because things started, you know, there was a year of like really having to start over like one year in LA where I mm -hmm. like couldn't really pay my rent, you know, like I was struggling to pay my rent and I didn't have any road gigs and things weren't really happening. But after that year, things started really taking off for me. Um, and I really believe that it was because I took a leap of faith. What came first? Was it TV? Was it radio? Or was it road gigs? What was the first thing to... I got an agent fairly quickly because of Eric Griffin. Eric oh, yeah, Griffin. Okay. Yeah, Eric Griffin and I knew each other. He's all, He had been based in LA the whole time I knew him, but we had the same college agent at one point. So I met him on the road um, at like a NACA. And um, we were friendly and we had sort of vaguely kept in touch, not really, you know, kind of just as acquaintances. And then when I moved to L.A., he had he was doing workaholics. He was a regular on workaholics. And so he was doing really well and like his career was taking off. And so I reached out to him. I was like, hey, congrats on everything. I just moved to town. Um, I wonder if you'd be so kind as to introduce me to your agents. And he kind of yeah, yeah, yeah me for a few months. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but then... I got booked on a fundraiser at the Laugh Factory uh, for Dick Van Dyke. Dick Van Dyke um, works with a homeless shelter called the Midnight Mission. Okay. Which is a really great homeless shelter, which I have actually done some work with since then. Um, so it was a big fundraiser for the Midnight Mission. Dick Van Dyke was going to be hosting the show, uh, which is one of those random L.A. things, right? Like, right. Like a random alley. Dick Van Dyke is hosting the show at the Laugh Factory. Like, what? That doesn't even make sense. But yeah, he was hosting the show. And it was like, I was on the show and Eric Griffin was also on the show. And so he texted me and was like, hey, we're on the same fundraiser tonight. My agent's coming. And I told him about you. So I crushed it. <laughs> thankfully thankfully mm -hmm. as you know that is never a guarantee but I did really really well I had a really great set and his agent was there and he saw me and he was like I think you're great I'd love to work with you and I was like great so I got that agent and then I started getting auditions and parts and stuff so and then I guess the next the thing you know you're meeting the Cone brothers and yeah, yeah. So and Oscar Isaac and all that. Yeah, yeah. Meow. You got. You really got inside Lewin Davis. <laughs> I wish I had gotten. I wish Lewin Davis had gotten in me. You know what I hey mean? Like, hey. No spoilers for Well Hung, but there's lots of uh, horny talk. <laughs> well, I mean. I just think, you know, people, people should go into watching my special with the, uh, with the knowledge that I am a trash mouth <laughs> and a trash mind. Mm -hmm. <laughs> trash mouth, trash brain. <laughs> but, but ever since, I mean, ever since then inside Lewin Davis, I mean, you've had steady work on TV. Yeah. Like, like not like main cast per, per se, but yeah, but I've been, I've been, 
I've been super lucky. I've been super lucky. You yeah. Got to be on on Sil- Silicon Valley with her. Silicon Valley. Amazing. That was super. That was, I got to be directed by Mike Judge, which, I mean, I've been now directed by the Cohen brothers and Mike Judge. That's not bad. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, Mike Judge is a legit genius. The, all three of those people are legit mm-hmm. geniuses. Um, but Mike Judge is like, legit a genius like you can just tell interacting with him you're like oh you're like on another level um and such a nice person nice person and the trippy thing about working with mike judge is you know he's the voice of hank hill king of the hill yeah and so you it's kind of like talking to hank <laughs> he's just like well, that, uh, he's got that, the little uh that, draw that's, that's better draw. than talking to beavis and butthead <laughs> But it's like weird when he's trying to like you're trying to have a legit conversation and Hank Hill is like, oh, uh, you're yeah, you're a really good actor. Uh. <laughs> and I'm like, I can't take you seriously. I'm sorry. This is so crazy. But um, yeah, I've been super lucky and yeah, really blessed. And again, I really credit it to taking a leap of faith to move to L.A. Like I really moved to L.A. with nothing. And but uh, but I think it's it's I it was like the best thing to happen to me. Yeah, because I'm a happier person <laughs> in LA. <laughs> and also my career is ticking off and there's just more opportunity. Like for TV stuff, obviously, there's more opportunity for TV and movies in LA. And right. that's um and that's like I have my health insurance through SAG now, you know? That's how much I've been working as an actor. So that's right. like a one super day you could get a call for a Geico ad with one of the Muppets. Is that that's the I one, mean, right? yes! <laughs> Did you see that one? With that's the, mo- that's yeah. the most starstruck I've ever been. Honestly, I worked with some really famous people, but having getting to work with a Muppet, I was like, mm-hmm. oh my God. Because he, uh, the Muppet animal, the Muppet that I worked with has three handlers. Mm-hmm. So there's like, you know, a guy with his hand literally up his butt. <laughs> Uh-huh. And then there's a guy on a with a stick that's working his limbs and stuff. Right, because he's a drummer. So yeah, so he's got limb. He's got somebody working his limbs, and then mm-hmm. somebody's also working his eyes because he has very expressive eyes yeah. that open and close like big, you know, those long mm-hmm. lashes. And um, and somebody's working his mouth, and then he's got a stylist. <laughs> I swear, the third person, the third handler, is like the person who makes sure he's like wearing his outfit mm-hmm. correctly, and he he wears like he's a drummer, so he's got like studded like leather like bracelets and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Like, there's some rock and roll pieces that he's he's wearing. That's that's not that different from working with David Spade, though, is it? Um, David Spade does not have a hand up his butt as far as I could tell as far as I could see there was no <laughs> other human that had his hand up David Spade's ass as far as I could see with the stylist with the because I the feel stylist. like he takes a lot of attention to his hair and his yeah wardrobe yeah yeah. And yeah yeah David Spade is but he was cool to work with because he just he just like spits out like ridiculous he just he he's got no filter Mm-hmm. literally no filter and it just comes out and it's like sometimes it's stupid and sometimes it's genius yeah that was you the did, cool thing you did that the after party stuff that you did that before you did work on uh never have i ever no yeah. uh it was around the same time oh, okay i wasn't sure if like one it was around the, the other no it was around Netflix the same family. time no uh, no the never have i ever 
Um, it didn't seem that Netflix branded to me. It was it's Mindy Kaling's production company, and I think okay. they kind of gave her rain, you know, free reign. So like, it wasn't. It didn't feel that Netflixy to me. Like there weren't like next Netflix executives everywhere all the time. Okay. You know, it's like it's Mindy Kaling, so like they kind of let her do whatever she's gonna do. Um, but the but the um, the David Spade show definitely felt like a Netflix show. Like it right. was brand, like there was branding everywhere, and there were like executives from Netflix and. Because yeah. the whole point of the show is to promote other Netflix shows. Right. So, yeah, exactly. Uh, how long have you been doing stuff with NPR? NPR, I've been um, on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me for, I want to say, seven years now. And that was another thing that came from me moving to L.A. Like, I moved to L.A. and I started working the clubs and I met Maz Jabrani. Mm-hmm. who's a regular who's been on that show for years and years and years. And then I saw that that show was doing a live taping in LA and I've been a fan of that show. I Netflix, I, I bucket listed that into existence. Oh, wow. Sean. I like literally like when I was like a two year or three year green comic, I wrote it into my bucket list. I want to be a panelist on wait, wait, don't tell me. Cause I'm a stand up now. I'm a stand-up now. I, it was two years in, and I was like, I want to be on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Like this radio so show that's usually in the Midwest. <laughs> exactly. But I was such a fan. Mm-hmm. And then I saw that they were coming to L.A. and doing a live taping in L.A., and I saw that Maz Jabrani was, was going to be on the panel. Okay. And I was like, I know Maz. So I wrote to him, and I was like, hey, um, honestly, I was just asking for free tickets. I was like, hey, I see you're doing the taping, like, do you think you could swing some free tickets for me? And Moss being the amazing, generous person that he is was like, yeah. And there's an after party. Do you want to come? And I'm like, hell yeah. And he's like, yeah, I'll introduce you to the team. And I was like, amazing. So I go to the taping. It was fantastic. I go to the after party and Moss being Moss is like, Hey, this is Helen. She's hilarious. You should have her on. I didn't, I didn't even ask him. Like Mm -hmm. I didn't, I just was like, I'm a fan. And Moss took it upon himself to be like, yo, Helen's great she's you know she's hilarious you should try her out and they did (laughs) like they could I couldn't believe it I mean I think also I hit it at the exact right moment where that show particularly and NPR as a whole was really trying to become more diverse Mm. because for decades it was just so white right you know NPR is so white as an organization and wait wait don't tell me like it was all white men all yeah. white men. No, I remember and... what, when I would when I was spending more time visiting my parents when I was younger, and they lived closer to me. Every every time, because it was usually on a weekend that I would be with them, so I was always hearing clicking car talk to <laughs> two old white guys from Massachusetts yep. or Garrison Keeler, old yep. white guy from Minnesota. Yeah, totally, yeah. And the whole all the panelists on Wait Wait World were were white men, usually older white men. You know, and so they were uh, this was seven or eight years ago. They were actively trying to bring more diversity into the show. And I think I just hit it at the exact right moment where they were like, oh, you're an Asian woman Two two check marks already. Like, yeah, let's let's try you out. So I tried out and um, thankfully I didn't eat it. (laughs) And, And it's been seven or eight years and I love it. I love it. It's my favorite gig. Yeah, because when I when I think about NPR, those shows, the NPR quiz shows, now I think about how 
their state, their roster of comedians is so different from the comedians that I regularly see on TV panel yeah, quiz shows. Totally. It's like yeah. they don't even, they don't even mix. They really, they really walk to the beat of their own drummer. I think because the show is such a long time hit, mm-hmm. they have carte blanche like to do anything they want. And so they bring in panelists that no one's ever heard of. They bring in panelists that are like legacy panelists that have been there for decades and decades and like are very old school, like journalists. And like, they're like, we don't care. It works for us. You know, so they don't, they don't, um, they don't sway to whatever's going on in the zeitgeist, like whoever's hot. Right. You know, they don't, it doesn't bother them because they're like, we're always going to be a hit. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's funny how that works. I know. Um, How, (laughs) it sounds like watching your special it sounds like you got kind of called out of the blue to do this. Oh or at least that's God. what you say in your, when you're joking about it. It's like, you got a call three weeks before the taping. 100%. 100% <laughs> true. I, that's first ridiculous. of all, we taped, my tape, my special was taped, like, you know, I think I say this in the special too, right? Like your dream is to get a big comedy special as a stand-up comic. It's like the ultimate goal is to get a big stand-up, you know, an hour-long special. And um, and so I was like, that was always my goal. And then the world ended <laughs> and the pandemic happened. And I hadn't done stand-up in literally a year. I mean, I had done Zoom shows, but I hadn't physically stood up in front of an audience for a year. And then, and then, you know, my, my special was taped in conjunction with Tribeca Festival. And it was, it was the, the event that was going to reopen New York City after lockdown. It was the first public event that was like allowed, allowing people to congregate together after lockdown. And um, yeah, I got it. I got offered this like very, very, with not a lot of lead time. Like I would say a month. <laughs> Maybe a month and a half. Like maybe mm-hmm. I exaggerated a little bit. Like sure. it might have been a month and a half. Right. But still, like a month and a half to be like, hey, you haven't been on stage in a year. Come to <laughs> fly to New York City in front of an audience of masked humans and <laughs> tell jokes for an hour. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and you saw the special. Like the whole thir- first 30 minutes is brand new jokes about the pandemic. Right. Because I couldn't talk about anything else. You know, like in that moment, I couldn't talk about the stuff that I had talked about a year before, before the pandemic. It just didn't seem like real anymore. It didn't seem it didn't seem like what is the point of talking about this stuff? Like the pandemic is the only thing we've been talking about for a year. That's all I want to talk about. So all those jokes, the first half of my special were brand new jokes that had only been tried in front of Zoom audiences, really. Um, so I kind of wanted to give a little bit of a like, Hey, like heads up, this might go well, or it might not. (laughs) Would you have, would you have felt better had they called you the year before when they did, when Comedy Dynamics and Tribeca did specials outside at the Rose Bowl in the parking lot? No, no, because I, I mean, I love the concept and it was so novel but the concept of like honking right. cars honking instead of hearing, being able to hear laughter. <laughs> I mean, I think I, I, I actually maybe would have liked that better because it would have been so far removed from any normalcy that it would have been like, Hey, 
whatever happens, happens, you know? Like, and I think that was the attitude a lot of comics went in. Like, hey, this is unprecedented. Like, I've never told jokes to a bunch of cars before. Right. And the way that I know that it's funny is if you honk. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but I think, you know, we just got to all roll with it. You know, everything, we just got to roll with it. And I just rolled with it. And I was, I was honored to be asked. I was, I felt honored to be asked. And I was, I felt lucky to, to be asked to do the special. And I'm proud of the jokes that I did. A lot of the jokes that were brand new jokes, I felt like I'm really proud of them and I stand by them. And then the second half of the special is more like stuff, some older jokes and then paired with the stuff about the baby, my brand new baby that did not exit my body. (laughs) Now, two questions, both related. Were your parents at the taping? No. Have they seen the special yet? No. Are they going to? No. (laughs) I have spent, I've been doing stand-up now for like 16 years. Mm -hmm. And my parents have seen me live one time and it was for a Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me taping. So it wasn't even my stand-up. It was just like jokes, like me on a panel telling jokes, very sanitized. They have never seen me live. And they never will because I would have a meltdown if they were there. Like I would be like super flustered. Even if they were in a car in the parking lot <laughs> outside a football stadium. Yes. <laughs> You'd yes. be like, because I would, because I would hear nothing but the lack of their honking. You'd be like, no, that Kia. I know that Kia. <laughs> that Kia is not honking. God damn it. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I I had Karen Chi on the podcast recently. Oh, I love her. And uh, she spent a lot of the pandemic in Korea. Yeah. But it got me thinking about how, specifically with, with Co- Korean culture, it's been enjoying a moment the last few years. Oh, my God. With, you know, you mentioned Parasite. Game- but but there's, Squid yeah, Squid, I Squid taped, Game. I taped the special before Squid Game came out. I figured because, you had to because, because you didn't mention Squid Game. I would have said Squid Game because Squid Game was so much bigger than Parasite. Right. At the time that I taped the special, Parasite was bigger, was like the biggest thing along with K-pop and K-dramas. But yeah. since then, I mean, since I taped the special, holy crap, Squid Game, you know, that actress, the lead actress from Squid Game is now in like all these Hollywood movies. She's being cast in all these Hollywood movies and she deserves it because, man, she her performance was killer in Squid Game. Um, but also K-pop is taking over like BTS, like per- just performed at Coachella. Like, come on. Yeah. It's crazy. So how does it feel as a daughter of Korean immigrants to to know? I, that- it's it's super cool. But at the same time, like knowing Korean culture, I know the dark side behind it. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, there, I think there's a documentary out about like the dark side of like what it takes to be a K-pop star and the dark side and, and Squid Game, the premise, the entire premise of Squid Game is like, Income right. inequality has co- become so bad. And did you hear, like, if you read some but of that's the... That's Parasite, too. I mean... 
if you read some of the interviews with the with the writer of Squid Game, he had written that script 10 years before and he was shopping around for 10 years and nobody would pick it up because no studio was like, this is too unrealistic. Like no one would sign up for this. And he said he had to wait for the world to become so desperate that this actually makes sense, that the storyline would make sense, that people would leave their lives to come almost get killed, you know, risk being killed mm-hmm. to make millions and millions of dollars. And I, there's a lot of societal problems in Korea about income inequality. So I kind of like, I, I'm so proud that the culture artistically is having a moment, but I also being Korean know the dark side behind that artistic moment. So, you know, well, I can see our time is almost up. So thank you for being desperate enough to finally do my podcast. <laughs> I'm glad no. I waited this long. Sean, I told you I'm a hot mess. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a hoarder. I couldn't find my laptop. I was literally like mountains of crap was falling on me in my room. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really thank appreciate you. it. Thanks for having me. Bye. Bye. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was post-produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music was by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. If you enjoyed listening, please check out my substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com for transcripts, bonus commentary, and expert analysis about comedy, show business, and more. I'm your host, Sean L. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.